What if someone came to you and offered you a job that was different than what you had planned for your leadership journey? This week's guest, George Valenzuela, shares how one job offer changed the trajectory of his leadership career forever. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. George, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Gosh, it's my pleasure, man. I'm so happy to be here and finally put a, a Twitter handle and a Facebook friend to an actual face. It's great to meet you, brother. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. And we've connected through the Teach Better Speaking Network, which is something we'll talk about during this podcast. But I want to dive into your leadership journey. And we just share with the listeners how you became a adjunct professor at Old Dominion and then the lead coach at Lifelong Learning Defined. Okay, great. So I started out as a teacher. I became an administrator. I worked in a central office in Virginia, and I was responsible for the engineering teachers. And so at the time, I really had a passion for for teaching and learning experientially. And so I traveled out to the West Coast, and I started to learn from the Buck Institute for Education just how to teach, you know, all facets of instruction in experiential learning, in project-based learning, just how to plan, how to um, facilitate. And so that eventually led me to opening up my own company. It's called Lifelong Learning Defined. I named it that because I feel that for myself, I have to find what peak performance means personally and professionally. And so I named it that because I have to find it, but also so that I can help other teachers also define it as well for themselves. And so around that time, I want to say it was 2017, I started to work on, on a PhD and I was offered a graduate um, teaching assistance or assistantship. And so I became, I guess, an adjunct, right? Mm-hmm. And so now it's officially an adjunct. And so I get to teach a STEM class remotely so that I can do what I'm doing with lifelong learning to find. I get to travel all over the country and meet a lot of amazing people. And it's an honor. You had talked about being a administrator and then going into a district position. When you were in a position prior to that, was that something that you always aspired to become was an administrator? Well, at first I was a broke teacher. (laughs) And so I was told by my stepdad, he's like, man, you have to become an administrator so that you can earn a decent living. And so I got some other advice from another friend as a teacher. He said, hey, if you have a part-time job, you can do well. And so in my mind, I thought, hey, I'll be an admin. And so I got into the program, um, into the, you know, admin program, you know, everything. And when I did my internship, I was, I want to say 29 or 30. And my friend told me by the age of 35, you want to be in the job that you want because it's downhill from there. And so, you know, I was on that pace and everything. And when I did my internship, I realized if I were to become an assistant principal, I would be doing bus and cafeteria duty and referrals for a very long time. That's not where I need to be. I still need to be in in the classroom. And so there was a lady from central office and she would walk by my room or come through my room because my back room had a door that led into the parking lot. And so her son, his class was right next door to me. And so she was at central office and she would walk in and she'd see me teach. And eventually she, she approached me. She was like, hey man, the specialist 
for tech ed engineering, he just retired. And we know that you won't know all the aspects of that job, but you're a phenomenal teacher. And if we can use that knowledge to now help mentor 40 other teachers, I think that we can teach you all the other stuff. And so I thought for sure that it would be just like the AP job. And so I turned it down, but I've learned that whatever's meant for you is meant for you. Mm -hmm. And six months later, she approached me again. I reached out to my stepdad and he said to me this, which I never forgot. And I still use the same logic now. If it's your idea, you might get a no. If it's their idea, they want you to succeed. So they're going to help you. And so, yeah, I had to interview. I had to do everything like everyone else, but it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And, and so because of that, it was a good fit at that time. For those who don't know about administrative positions in central office, and especially with the STEM program, what did that entail? You had talked about you know mentoring 40 other teachers, but I know there's a <laughs> lot more to that job. It's curriculum and instruction. So basically what that means is I'm responsible for the entire curriculum, um, planning it, how it's taught, um, equipment, materials, um, consumables and stems. We do a lot of design challenges. And so there's some hard equipment, you know, stuff that, you know, lives for a while. But then there's stuff that we, you know, after a project, it it goes in the garbage. you know, and so I'm responsible for all of that, for all of my teachers and also for all of their um, PD and um, conferences, workshops, you know, having a summit every summer. And so I was responsible for a lot. Luckily, we had a team. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with four or five other people and we planned all of these things and we had a lot of meetings and, you know, they raised me, I, I would say. And so if it weren't for those experiences, I wouldn't understand how federal funding works, how the academics or, or the um, content areas, how they work in tandem with CTE, with the electives, how a school division is run. You know, that was an education that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. And so I'm extremely happy that I had those experiences and I'm very grateful. So moving from a teacher position to a central office position is always going to be a a hard, hard move. What would be one trial that you felt was really difficult in that transition? For me was learning all the politics, Mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden, um, and I've seen this in other places too, it's not necessarily what you know is who you know. And so, yeah, eventually when you really develop your own identity and, and people know you for a specific thing, then, then you're fine. But in the beginning, when you don't have that type of credibility, you have to earn it. So it's more of making sure that you are very well um, connected with people. And so I remember my first evaluation from our director. And she said to me, you did a good job, not because you learned everything, but because you made the right friends. Mm-hmm. You went to the right people, you requested mentorship, and they helped you. And they had great things to report, not only about your work, but about your potential. And so I learned that very early on, you meet the right people. And it's basically, it's sort of like on the street, you go and see who's in the know, who knows what, and who knows who. And then you, you know, don't make a lot of noise. You just learn from the right folks. Right. And so 
that's how it went. So the mentorship piece is very, very huge in that process. And I know some of my former guests have talked about that, but I also know that other folks feel weak by asking for help because they feel like, well, I'm in this leadership position. I should know what this job entails. So why was that so important? Well, because you don't know what you don't know. And so I remember the very first day and he looked at me and he said to me, and I'll never, ever forget this. And it sounded like it didn't sound that great when it reached my ears. He said to me, to be honest with you, you're not going to learn this job for at least nine years. That's the learning curve in curriculum and instruction. I don't know if you heard that before, but, but that's what he said. But in my mind, I said, no, after three years, I'm on to the next thing. And you know what? I remained in that job for nine years. And he was right. It took me eight years before I really understood everything I was doing and not only understood it, but I was able to explain it and to demonstrate it. And so the learning curve was that long. And if I didn't have a mentor, I wouldn't even have known that. The topic of STEM and robotics is obviously something that you're passionate about because uh-huh. we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but you have a new book, Rev Up Robotics. Robotics <laughs> is a tricky word. Some folks are very scared of technology and especially robotics in that field. So for those who may not have a robust amount of technology in their schools, but they're wondering about what robotics can do for their students, what would you say to them? Well, so what robotics is, is just building and programming robots. And so as we know that robotic um, technology or automation is just part of everything that is happening in, and, you know, across many sectors and many industries mm-hmm. or, and, and so this type of knowledge is important because it gives um, kids an understanding of what happens in the automotive industry in, um, you know, NASA and AI, agriculture, things like that. But the book, although it says Rev Up Robotics, it also has another part. Mm-hmm. Rev Up Robotics, real world, computational thinking in the K through eight classroom. When I started in, in the PhD program, initially I was going to focus on project-based learning because I had been doing that for a while. But in my back pocket, I had CS already because it was in my undergrad. I was a computer science major back 20 something years ago. And so in 2016 in Virginia, there, there, there was a lot of noise about CS now becoming mandatory. Um, the integration of that and computational thinking into our standards of learning. And so when I first heard about it, I knew that it was a good thing because of the workforce needs and all of that, but I didn't really see how it would become interesting to, to our students because when I was in the major, there were very few Americans in it and very few folks that you know, look like me. And so I enjoyed it. I loved it at the time, but I got into teaching and there wasn't any computer science class. So I had to learn about STEM. So I had to redo a lot of my um, studies and learn something new. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, all of a sudden in my state, there were computer science courses in the schools and teachers needed training. And so because of project-based learning, I would be in New York, Florida, in Connecticut, all these different states. 
And during planning time, I started to meet math and science folks that were very intimidated by now having to integrate this stuff into what they teach. And so the biggest aha moment happened where I realized that the core concepts and practices in CS back 20 something years ago haven't really changed. The foundational principles and fundamentals are the same. What's changed is who can teach it, who can learn it, and where it lives in the curriculum. Just like STEM engineering, the same thing. It's a design loop. And so if you learn what the design loop is and you're working on a challenge, you think about the scientific principles, what math applies, and the tech tools you have to use. And within that STEM or that design process, I completely revamped my focus from PBL for my research to computational thinking and CS. And so I did a study which is now published. It's in the book. And I basically interviewed folks that had to teach CS, math and science teachers, and also researchers and also experts. I learned that the reason why folks aren't very confident, like how you said, or don't have any, you know, don't have the the right um, self-efficacy is because they don't have the background. It's, you know, it's very simple. They don't understand what the basics are or what the guiding principles are. So what I set out to do through my writing and through my workshops is to create everything in actionable steps. And so the book is, is designed, it's in the context of robotics, but problem solving through computational thinking is addressed, is taught, and a plethora of resources are made available, even without technology. And then what engineering is, STEM, CS, all of that is taught in the book through robotics, building and programming robots. But the guiding principles can be applied to other areas of computer science or other branches or other technologies. Well, that's part of the book has different sections for different subjects. So that was one part I loved was that it wasn't just about math and science, but you also touch on other subjects. And so for our ILA teachers or our social studies teachers, how might they incorporate robotics? Yeah. So what I did was because I help a lot of teachers plan, I realized that there are some spiraling standards or, um, you know, big themes that have to be taught every single year, like reading and writing, speaking and, and, um, and um, listening and things like that, you know, argumentative writing, you know, essays and stuff. And so basically what I, I did was I went through the standards and looked at the standards-based skills and correlated those to this context, mm-hmm. problem solving through computational thinking, programming, robotics, and just made alignment and picked what standards work best. And then, you know, that was done to take all the guesswork away from the English teacher, from the math, science, history teacher. So he or she could remain that teacher. But for the lessons that they want to address, they can teach their area through these activities. And I basically went through and honored whatever's been done in that context with my context 
and put those resources through um, QR codes so they can easily access them and then a model lesson plan so that they can just follow the steps after they learned what the principles and what the alignment is. In addition, I also aligned each of the lessons to the CSTA standards and to the ISTE standards, just so that folks can really see how all that works all together. Yeah. So George, I'm curious on what you believe the future of robotics is in schools. Honestly, I think that through robotics, we we can learn to apply artificial intelligence. And I think that's where a lot of folks have gone. Um, there's a lot of work, Jamie Donnelly and, and some other folks are involved in that. But as far as the rigor level for K through eight and K through um, 12, I just think if the principles are there and the foundational skills are there, understanding how to create an algorithm, how to create an app, how to make a program, right? How to troubleshoot it, what inputs are, outputs, loops, functions, variables, logic, just the foundational things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where the future goes. When you have these skills, you will be successful in any century. I want to shift gears on you because you are a part of the Teach Better network now, the speaking network. And I just am curious, how did you get connected with the Teach Better team? Oh my gosh. You know, I have to give a big, big shout out to Ray and Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, they are amazing educators. You know, it's an amazing story. My, you know, biggest dream was to have a blog on Edutopia. And for a long time, I wasn't good enough yet. And I worked at it, worked at it. And eventually um, I was introduced to an editor there and he introduced me to other people. And so eventually after my second or third blog, they invited me to be the moderator or one of the moderators, I should say, in a Twitter chat that Edutopia hosted. Well, I did not know that the whole world is on those things. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. And that same night, there's a guy named um, Tim Cavey, an amazing guy, amazing educator. He reached out and Jeff Gargis reached out. And they invited me on their shows. And so before that, to be honest, it wasn't on my radar. I had about two podcasts. I didn't feel I was any good um, at the time. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to do that again. But when they reached out, it's one of those things that you don't pass up opportunities. And so before I did teach better, I researched them. But when I researched them, I became a fan because I didn't see, they don't just highlight folks that are doing big or, or they're out there. They highlight anyone that's doing good things. Even folks who aren't on Twitter, even the folks who aren't on, on social media. And so when I started listening, I realized that when I'm in the gym, when I'm at the airport on the airplane in the car, I could be getting my daily dose of PD. And so by the time I got on, on the show, I was very familiar with how they go back and forth, you know, all the banter. I knew what all the questions were about to be. So I was very well prepared. I think it was a great episode. I think that they enjoyed it. We ended up following each other. And like I said earlier, I'm not big on asking for opportunities. Mm -hmm. I just, I do my work. I do my best work and it's other people's ideas. And so one day Ray reached out to me. She was like, Hey, can we hop on a call? And you know how how she is, right? Um, and so it's Ray. So I'm like, yeah, of course. And oh, I'll backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. When they had 
the Teach Better conference. I was not in attendance, but it I was know, all I would, over. I would have seen you there, man. <laughs> right. It was all over Facebook. And I'm not a jealous person. I never look at another person at their blessings or their opportunities and be like, I wish I had that. No, I'm not like that at all. But in my heart, I was like, man, I wish I was a part of that. Mm-hmm. I can see myself, you know, there with all those smiling faces, all those educators who took back their classrooms and our profession. And I'm like, man, I wish I was a part of that. And I kept it in my heart and I kept it moving. Well, when she reached out um, and she said this herself on Facebook Live, you know, and she said, we wanted to convince you that you need a team. And so the thing was, I was already convinced. I had already bought in and I felt like I needed a team too. And so it was a natural fit. And so, yeah, man, it's, you know, it's just an unbelievable thing. And then I'm exposed to, you know, folks like you, Neil Gupta, Mandy's on there as well, you know, Hans and and his wife, you know, P. Sloan, just amazing people, um, Caitlin, just amazing folks that are doing amazing work. Um, Chad, you know, Chad's everywhere. In fact, I haven't seen anyone like me except Chad that every week is almost in a different state yes, or yes. a different school. And so, you know, it's just an honor. It's it's a privilege. And so. So, George, I want to talk about that journey is you finding your voice because you've talked about blogging. Yeah. Obviously, you have your workshops and you're going all over the country speaking. So where did that come from where you found that you had something to provide to other educators? Well, you know, it's so, so funny. I just had the same conversation with two other people. And so for me, um, I think that for anyone, and it's not just speaking or, or, you know, just anything that you like to do, you know, the prerequisite for anything that you get into, I think should be a passion for it. And so I have a passion for just being a great teacher or just like, you know, teaching. And so because I have a passion for it, it's a happy space for me. And, you know, um, I've learned this recently that, you know, as I'm learning about emotional intelligence, that the first thing is the emotion then the feeling and then the behavior. Mm-hmm. And so when you already have this in you that you like this thing, when you start to do it, you derive happiness from that thing. Well, that happiness, it's actually a selfish thing because it's all about you. So we were put here to help people. So now if you take that thing you're passionate about, which for me is teaching and learning, and you flip it and you turn it into a purpose and become an expert in order to help other people, then that becomes a purpose. And then when it's a purpose, then everything I'll say the universe, I'll say God, you know, he gets all the credit. It conspires to put things in your path to help you fulfill your purpose. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just you and I meeting, he, you know, I'm Jeff and Ray, all the opportunities is because it's my purpose. And so all the experiences are meant to teach me to live in that purpose. Mm-hmm. It might seem very complex, but it's really not. Yeah. The, the hard part is just being consistent at building the expertise because when you go to schools, you get all these different contexts. You have all these different situations, mm-hmm. high performing, low performing, rural, inner city, you know, you name it. And so you are constantly having to redefine 
what the work looks like in that space. But where there's passion and there's purpose, there's always a way. All right, so RevUp Robotics is out now. What's yeah. next for George? Oh man, you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> so for me right now, I feel that for this space of education, for computer science, for ed tech, for, well, not so much ed tech, but for robotics, yep. for engineering, I feel that the book is an evergreen resource that will live in the space of an education for a while, and, and it's going to be a great PD resource. Mm -hmm. And so for the next two years, I plan on promoting the book and doing workshops on the book. But internally, I've moved on from this topic because I feel like, yes, I can still teach it. But for me to keep on adding to what's been done, I feel like now it's overkill, right? right. And so I'm focusing for, um, for um, 2020 on my relationships, on being a good person on developing my emotional intelligence skills. And so my first blog, it's, it was what educators can do to have a meaningful holiday break. And so my next one is three things educators can do to put their emotions in check. And so now I'm focusing on developing a blog series, Lifelong Learning Defined for Peak Performance, which addresses the, the lifelong learning defined part of George. Mm -hmm. And that's the foundation for the next book. And that's the title for the next book as well. Oh, look at that. Breaking news here. <laughs> so for me, I've defined it. I have a framework for it. I, I've developed it. I've lived it. And so now I just want to offer that to people. That's awesome. And, you know, just build my relationships um, with colleagues, with friends, with family, because as a father, I've learned that, and even in this work, I've learned that life is about relationships and it's, we can do a lot more in a team than we can individually. Mm -hmm. And so I love that I'm on this, on this teach better team on PBL works, lifelong learning to find is also a team. And I, you know, my family, of course, which you see on Facebook, I love them a lot and all my friends. And so I just want to be someone that is positive and that really contributes, not just in our profession, but to the lives of those that mean most to me. So George, for our aspiring leaders, what advice would you give to them if they do not hold a leadership position yet? It should always be someone else's idea, but you should work towards what you want to see. And so, and so the thing is this, no one is going to believe that you're a leader until you believe it. And so you have to figure out what do I need to know and do and once you figure that out, after you map it backwards, you seek out advice and mentorship from the people that have already accomplished it. Mm -hmm. And that eliminates a lot of the guesswork, a lot of the learning curve, and it puts you one step closer. George, how can the listeners connect with you on social media? At George Does PBL, that's J-O-R-G-E on Facebook and also on Lifelong Learning Defined dot com. I'm featured by the um, Teach Better team on Edutopia, on ISTE, of course. I want to give a big shout out to Emily Reed over at ISTE, Valerie Witt, Mrs. Fingal, everyone there. If it were not for them and their mentorship, I would not have this book. The work would not be articulated as well. And so I just want every educator to know about ISTE and to support ISTE and to 
not just learn how to augment instruction through ed tech, but also to advocate for students that are most furthest from opportunity so that we can get what we need for our kids. Yeah. George, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. I've loved connecting with you the last couple months. It's an honor to be on your team with the Teach Better Speaking Network. And I'm just so grateful that you are on here sharing your knowledge with our aspiring leaders. Man, you too as well, brother. I look forward to more combos and actual real FaceTime. Yes. <laughs> and to all the listeners, man, happy 2020 and just do your best work. <laughs>